It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Tennis fans, players, coaches, parents. Welcome to the First Serve's dedicated junior tennis podcast. The Junior Journey with Betty Sikolowski and Michael Legazzo. Welcome back to another exciting episode of The Junior Journey, where we talk all things junior tennis. I'm your host, Betty Sekolovsky, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Legazzo. Hey, Betty. How's it going? Good, Mike. We've got an exciting episode ahead of us today. Really excited about today's episode and our special guests that we have on and the topic we're going to cover. Um, we're going to dive into the importance of environment and culture in a junior tennis program. So joining us today all the way from the US is Conrad Singh, who's the CEO of Tennis and Director of coaching at Centre Court Tennis Academy in New Jersey. Centre Court Tennis Academy is widely recognised for being the top private academy in the Northeast, which includes having three Wimbledon junior finalists in consecutive years. Conrad was also a former national coach in China and has developed many top national and college players as well as coached at over 50 Grand Slams. He holds a sports science degree majoring in biomechanics, is a regular lecturer and presenter at worldwide conferences, and also sits on the USTA High Performance Commission. Conrad, welcome. Thanks a lot, guys. Great to see you. Good old friends uh, catching up. Yeah, it's great to have you on. We've spoken a lot over the years. You know both Betty and and I very well, and I would love you to tell us more about Centre Court Tennis Academy. Yeah, sure, guys. Look, um, I think the first thing is that we're really proud of what we've been able to do in the last sort of five or six years. And the highlight, the cream on top of the cake, is obviously having three consecutive Wimbledon finalists, including a winner in 2021 with Samir Banerjee. These are purely homegrown players and you know truly incredible uh, athletes. And I think you'll see in the next years ahead, um, they're going to really do well on the Pro Tour as well. Michael Jang, who was a finalist last year just made it to the final of a 90,000 where he lost to Kanish Corey. Um, he's already up in the sort of 400s. But I think the key thing there, you know, other than, than those players, as you just mentioned a moment ago, is the environment of center court. You have to look at a few factors. One key factor is our geography. We are right in the hot spot of arguably the most densely populated competitive tennis area on the planet. Um, between New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Philadelphia, and access to all those tournaments, and even up towards Boston, Massachusetts, there are just so many good tennis players. And tennis really has a stranglehold on the area. You can see, you go to many of the clubs, and you can see they've been around for a very long time. So tennis is part of the fabric in this part of the, the earth. But other than that, I think a major part of, of center court success is the fact that we have high school tennis, college tennis, junior varsity tennis, you know, and, and kids all want to make those teams. And so that keeps them competing and it keeps them wanting to play. Center Court, we're nine facilities up here, nine world-class, absolutely awesome facilities. Hard courts, clay courts, indoors, outdoors. You know, we've got everything. So we, we do get the best talent coming through our door because where we're located and the fact that we've got absolutely everything. Um, our coaching staff also, Mike, is, is very special. And, and Betty, we've got specialists in their areas and you know part of I guess part of my role uh, is to assemble that team and so it's taken me many years to pull together 
the team I want. We've got it now. So we really do see ourselves as a centre of excellence. And it's not just hitting tennis balls. It's everything about it. It's, um, you know, educating parents, you know, being very close to coaches, providing opportunities for coaches to get better. Um, we really put a lot of emphasis in, in our staff. And ultimately, you know, the, the success comes because of the quality of the human beings that, are, that, are, that we have in the organisation. Yeah, you made several really good points there, Conrad. And, you know, what I'm about to ask may be deemed as controversial <laughs> a little bit, but there's been a lot of discussion around academies and what, you know, what are the benefits of it versus a private market or a private coach or a hitting partner or whatnot. And I've read several articles on this um, of recent times and I'm not sure what you guys think, but obviously being within an academy and I've been within one myself, what would you say to those people that are, you know, looking at investing their money into an academy putting you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars aside towards it, you know, what are you seeing as the benefits to a young, you know, young, I guess, junior coming into it? What are the benefits for them? What are the long-lasting effects of being in an environment like that versus, I guess, doing it the other way, which would be a little more, you know, a little a smaller team, maybe in your, like a private market situation? Yeah, well, I think you guys know as well as I do that there's not one format that works. Some people will thrive in a smaller environment. We've certainly got kids that, that are like that, but others thrive in a bigger environment where they're surrounded by like-minded friends, you know, if you want peers, and they're all pushing each other. And you look at any any sort of, you know, country or state that's developed a lot of players, it's normally a, a pool of players that develop each other. And that's the benefit of an academy. You, there's no way you can debate that. One of my little pinpoints is the word academy, you know, what defines an academy? There's a lot of one-man bands that call themselves an academy. That's not an academy. So for us, we are a true academy in that we've got, as I mentioned before, specialists in every area, you know, whether it be physical, whether it be medical, whether it be on-court, biomechanical, mental, all the areas that are needed, we have specialists in those areas. And I think that's what makes up an academy. As well as that, I really feel like one of the most important factors of an academy is the competitiveness of the program. So, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that are training and training and training and training and not competing enough. The backbone of our programs is competition. That is, I'll tell that to any parent that knocks on the door. The difference between Santa Court and anywhere else you go is that we hang our development off competition. Now, I'll just backtrack a little bit further. To be a true academy, you've got to have the facilities. Now, that's something we are absolutely very fortunate to have in that, as I mentioned, we've got several clubs, but we've also got several universities in the area that have you know beautiful facilities, eight courts, six courts, 10 courts. We've also got all of those. So I've just come from match play right now where you know 10 kids will turn up. We try to make sure that our kids that are at what we call the elite or the national levels playing at least eight practice sets a week. That's got to be one of the biggest benefits of an academy is having other kids around to compete with. So, you know, I think it's important that there is obviously this personalized approach to every player. And the secret is to be able to personalize within a group. And again, we've mastered, uh, I think we've mastered to the best of our ability at this point, how to create small teams within an academy. So we've kind of cut up the players, whether it be by UTR or, or by the levels that they're competing at. We talk about three levels of player, the regional player, the sectional player, and then the national player. So we pull kids up by those three kind of cutoffs 
and that's how we're able to do a lot of match play, a lot of practice sets. Um, and I feel like that is really the biggest difference between an academy and a private setup. Great answer, Conrad. Like I love a lot of what you said there. I think there are a lot of probably overused words in tennis and academy being one of them. Uh, probably the other one is high performance and oh, well, what actually good. makes up that in that environment. But I think you're spot on with the academy being somewhere where you have everything. Everything is covered. Um, a lot of places probably say it in name only, um, but you've got to have that holistic development that covers all areas. And, and the competitiveness, I think, is a huge one, um, which is probably something we'll we'll cover a little later on. And I see a lot of that in the US, um, probably a lot more so compared to Australia. So I'd love to touch on that in, in a little while. Uh, but going back to culture and the environment you have, how would you define it? I mean, you've sort of touched on it with the competitive aspect at Centre Court. Um, but how do you also ensure it's maintained for the long term, that it's sustainable over a long period of time? Because you're going to have players come in and out, coaches come in and out. Um, what what sort of practices and initiatives do you have to maintain that? That's a really good question. I, I think that the, the most important thing with regards to culture is stability. You know, we're in an environment, we're in a sport where the, the, the door turns quickly. Coaches in and out, as you mentioned, players coming and going. What I've, I've set up at Centre Court um, is basically seven different divisions of tennis. Each of those divisions have a leader. And that leader has been really consistent uh, in over the last five, seven years, we haven't really changed those leaders at all. So the philosophy for each of the different divisions of tennis, whether it be performance tennis or junior development tennis uh, or private lessons and personal programs or our strength and conditioning team, they've been consistent over the whole time. So the rapport that's been built amongst the leaders uh, has led to a quite a strong culture in that the players know the expectations there's very little wiggle room at the more serious level. Um, and, and we communicate really, really well. So that's, you know, I'd like to think one of my, my main priorities is to ensure that the channels of communication are always open. And obviously we use a lot of technology for that, whether it be video-based reports. Uh, one of the things we do, which I think is, is perfect and I wish everyone would follow, is we make video reports at the end of a term. We don't do written reports. Um, it's like a two to three minute filmed video. And we'll share that amongst all the coaches, all the fitness team, all the parents and the players. So the communication side uh, is really important in the cultural side, because if there's a kid, for example, and I can use my own son, who's, you know, he's a very talented young player, but you give him an inch and he's going to take a mile. So I need that to be consistent across all of the, environments that he's in whether it's private fitness match play travel team i need everyone to be on the same page and i think so communication's big we spend a lot of time together um you know we do have a lot of coach meetings we have a lot of leaders meetings we we do parent meetings once every uh season so every term we have an in-person parent meeting uh we do a lot of webinars on topics that parents will ask us about. And and another major part I think that's really helped us with the culture is that I developed a, an online um, coach education module, if you like, that only our coaches get access to, which is basically we're going through curriculums in that, we're going through technical parameters, we're going through uh, mental skills that we want to really stress out for this next period of time. 
Uh, and the way that everyone communicates is so well that that's been the key to the culture. I think something else that, that's huge for us is we talk a lot about pride in the pride in the logo, pride in the in the name, and you know we're really strong on things like uniform and uh, players wearing the brand and coaches at all times, you know, in uniform. And I think all of that, those little one percenters, add up in the end to to really define a, a strong culture. But again, it comes down to pride in our facilities, pride in our coach our coaches. Uh, we're very innovative, so we try to keep things moving. Often, you know, ahead of my time, and I'm a big believer in bringing in people who are the best in their areas. I'm, I'm, I'm not by no means am I the guru of everything. So I bring people in that that know what they're doing, and they help to keep the environment exciting uh, as well. But we really do try to stick to that center of excellence uh, topic. Another thing I would mention really quickly is we, you know, spending time with parents. We try to go a little deeper to try to understand the parents as well as the kids. And I have a lot of time to be able to do that. I guess as CEO, I'm on court maybe 15 hours a week. So I've got the rest of the time to sit down in my office. Parents will come in. We'll try to have that face-to-face time. I'll really try to understand the drivers of the parents, the cultures of the parents. You know, we've got a broad community, a lot of Asian-based clients, a lot of Indian clients, you know, different various segments of the community that are all a little bit different. So just spending time to understand that backstory, I think, helps a lot because then I can also communicate that on to the coaches and, and whatnot. Yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff in terms of what you guys are doing over there, Conrad. And I think the one thing I really like about what you're saying, and Michael, I'm sure you can attest to this, is the transparency that you have going on within your team, within your parents. I think the parents play such a massive role in what you're discussing and um, you know, in our previous episode, we did discuss, you know, the, the parents and, and how to keep them, on, you know, keep them, I guess, uh, in line with what, you know, coaches are doing and making sure they know what's happening as well. And I think that's really, really important when it comes to building a, a culture. It's just being transparent across the board, in, in my opinion. And also, I think what came across for me there, Conrad, which I don't know how many environments do this, but it sounds like you're doing it really, really well over there is the coach education piece within your team is continual development is, you know, maybe having younger coaches coming in who are probably less experienced, but then, you know, you've kept them for seven years and I'm sure they've evolved into fantastic coaches, fantastic team collaborators. So I think this part for me is a very rare thing. I don't know how many cultures are generally doing this in tennis, but it sounds like you guys are ahead of the game with that. Yeah, Betty, it's a priority. Honestly, it's a priority. We sat down was it last week? And we, you know, got a big, big whiteboard up and we write down all the coaches' names and, you know, how long have they been here? What what programs are they working in? And so now we start to identify the, the guys that are kind of moving up the path and um, we want to give them more opportunities. So, you know, where can we slot them into? For example, if they're working in a Red Bull Edge program, which is the Edge programs are the, the kind of performance kids of that level. Um, so if they're edge coaches at Red Bull, we want to give them a go at full-time program. Um, we want to rotate them in and kind of keep moving them around to keep it dynamic. That's something we, we do really well. We, we, we really do keep a lot of information on our coaches. I, I mean, I know every single week, how many hours private, how many hours group. I know when, you know, obviously everyone, when they had their last holiday, their leave, we're really trying to take care of our coaches because that's, that's our, that's our whole industry. Um, you know, happy coaches do a great job, tired coaches, no one wants to be around them. So that's something that, again, our seven division leaders, it's it's their job to really know what's going on within their teams 
And if something's needed, then we try to make it happen. Um, having said that, we can't make everything happen, but, you know, we do the, the best that we can. We try to send our coaches off to coach education just a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, actually. You know, the National Tennis Centre, Billie Jean King Stadium, 45 minutes away. Simon Wheatley was in town, so we took a group of 20 coaches out and spent a day with him. You know, we got people coming through New York all the time. We had Emma Doyle come out a few times. And then we've got leaders within our team. Uh, Adrian Contreras, who I'm, I'm not sure you guys know, he's the national coach of Mexico, Davis Cup. Great, great coach, great educator. Cinta Casanova from Spain, who brings in a whole nother flavor, Spanish flavor to what he's doing. Um, Sean Cahill, who's obviously probably one of the best educators I've ever met. And we, we're constantly doing things internally. Obviously, a lot of it's related to bettering themselves as coaches, but we also do stuff away from that in that, you know, we'll go out probably once every two months. We'll go and get a beer and a burger type thing. We'll play some ping pong. Trying to you know, create that balance for people as well. It's a big job, Betty. I mean, look, we're uh, 47 coaches, tennis coaches, in an organization of 300 staff of which 215 are coaches. So we also have 11 other sports. There's a lot of sharing that goes on amongst the different you know communities, which is great. Love the coach education and professional development piece because I don't think you can ever stop growing. And I think the strength of any program is the coaches you have, not so much the head coach, but everyone on the team and everyone on board and moving towards the same goal. I wanted to go back to the competitiveness aspect and how important that is to the environment. Having spent you know a couple of years coaching in the US and, and being there even last year, the thing that stands out the most is the level of competitiveness in every single session of the players over there. And you compare it to, say, Australia, it's chalk and cheese. There is a big difference in the level of competitiveness. I find here we always revert back to the technical or going back on court and hitting a lot of balls, but we don't actually focus on competing and essentially training to compete. Um, I feel like we have a lot of good ball hitters, but not necessarily a, a lot of great tennis players because of that. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on how important the competitiveness aspect is to you know building successful junior tennis players. It's everything, right? I mean, it's as I said earlier, we build players with competition really is the backbone in the whole development plan. And if you look at any of our programs from the first minute, it's competitive. So, you know, sometimes I wonder whether it's a bit too much, but the players will walk in, for example, let's call it the after-school program. The players will walk in. Um, everyone is, we, we take the top 20 kids for that day that are registered by UTR and divide them and put them in the top group, the next 20 in the middle group and the last 20 in the bottom group. So it's a, it's a floating, it's a, there's a lot of relegation and promotion going on. Um, and it, what that does in itself is it forces kids to compete because they don't want their UTRs to go down because they don't want to go down a bubble. So from that nature, competition's there right from the start. We monitor, we actually have a spreadsheet that monitors on a weekly basis, everyone's UTR, their uh, regional ranking and their sectional rankings. The players are aware of that. So again, that's a little bit more added pressure to be competing. When the players walk in the bubbles, we call them bubbles. Obviously, they're domed in the wintertime. When they walk in, everyone sort of spreads out and the first 15 minutes is ups and downs straight away. So you can be anywhere and you've got to get up the top. Um, look, it, it's great that we were able to do that because we do have, so again, so many players and that's what, I, again, what I was saying earlier, Betty, having so many people around in an academy is great for those kids that are competitive. It's a new face all the time. Um, and then, you know, what we do in our performance program 
is we mandate that players are doing a minimum of two clinics or squads, if you like, a week. And it's mandated that they have to take a private lesson as well. If they don't, they're not eligible for the program. But as well as that, they need to be competing two weekends of every month. Um, and again, so those com- competitions are usually going to be one USTA, one UTR event, or it might be two USTA events. But that is absolutely mandatory. And the minute that they start not doing that, we're onto them straight away. We've got a waiting list, you know, that's huge for kids that want to get in the program that are not in the program. The other thing that's important is we are able to monitor the number of matches the kids play a year. So, for example, I'll use my kids. Uh, my daughter's nine and a half. Uh, my son is 11 and a half. And they've already both played 75 matches this year, full matches, competitive matches. Probably practice sets. I would say probably another 50 practice sets um, as well. But that is what the program's all about. So the kids that don't want to do that or parents who are not you know, committed to that action plan, they don't last in the program. We get a lot of kids in this area that are extremely well-to-do. They are not short on resources. And you know, the parents tend to think that maybe we can spend a little bit more and they'll get in that program. We don't allow it. We're really black and white on, on you know what what you do get and what you don't get, and and having to earn it, Mike, is is what it's all about. You hear everyone say that over and over. So, yeah, I think I think in some ways UTR is helpful for that, but that's a whole nother topic. It's an interesting space, though, isn't it? Like you know, you're talking about a culture of huge amount of population competing. Like I've been in the states just recently. You know, I noticed that walking into an academy there. Kids are just ready to compete. They look forward to it. It's a very different setup than what I've experienced here where some kids may want to compete, but the majority just want to hit balls and do drills. It really, what you're saying, it's up to the program that kind of instills that that culture. But just being over there in the States, one of the things I was talking to Mike about was just they're just competing all the way through and there's commands being shouted across five different courts. You know, they're getting into it. They're allowing it to happen, which is exactly what you want to breed into your own cultures here. But um, I think it's, it's sometimes it's a little hard over here because, you know, when I spoke to these kids last week, they'll, they'll, for example, they were playing a match play session and, and one of the things was um, they were really flat. And I said to them, do you, normally, do you normally play this flat? Is this part of your kind of personality? How do you go about playing normally? And one of the sisters of, of the, one of the boys, their, their brother and sister in the, in the group, she said, no, he's normally like, you know, a lot more up and about. And one of the other kids like, no, I normally, you know, fist pump and all that. And I said, so what's, what's the difference here? You know, I know from back when I used to play, I used to try and train exactly how I would play. And that was something that was drilled into me from as coaches. And so I'd try and be myself as often as possible. Quite odd that these kids view practice sets as something that is so totally uh, unrelatable to the reality of what they're doing. Like when it should actually be, this is what you're doing. And everyone goes about their practice differently, but it's, you know, how do you just you want them to just be themselves, but it's such a different environment here where you've only got three or four kids next door to you practicing and it's just very low in in kind of environment, atmosphere, energy versus you've got 30 kids and everyone's just doing the same thing. So I don't know what you, Mike, what your thoughts are on that, but I just found that astonishing for me when I was over there. No, I 100% agree. That was the big standout for me. Whether it's a practice match, whether it's a tournament match, it doesn't matter. They are competing. They are, for the most part, putting their best out there. I find here we have a little bit of, a, and it's crept in. I think it's crept in over time where players are looking to see who's playing what tournament, 
and not just playing the tournament because I've got to get my matches and I've got to get this in. And and throughout the week, even on the court, it's they're not training to compete. At the end of the day, it's to compete. It's to get out there and and be warriors on the court. And I, I feel like that's a definite advantage that you guys have in the US. But I'm also interested about this um, that I can ask you is, do you think the fact that a lot of players, and, and no matter what the level in the US have the aim also of going to college, that that helps, that keeps them in the game longer. It makes them have that set goal for a longer period of time. Whereas I find here, you'll talk to a lot of our players and it's not even an option. It's like pro and they don't look at it as a, as a pathway even to get to pro and they rule it out completely. So they get to about 14, 15 and yeah, no, I'm not going to make it as a pro and they've lost all interest in the game. So what I found there is I would see 17-year-olds hitting with 13-year-olds because that 17-year-old wants to go to college. So they're still motivated and they're still then pushing those younger kids because they've got more practice partners of a, of a, of a high standard um, who are a little bit older, physically a little bit stronger. So I find the level is maintained for a longer period of time where I think that's a massive problem here. I don't know what your thoughts about that are. Having you know coached in both environments. Yeah, it's another really good point, mate. And I think one of the notes I made is, you know, we talk about these three kids who did so well at Wimbledon, but look at the generation before them. There was a group of boys that no one's really talking about, but, you know, North Carolina, Northwestern, Texas A&M, these are great schools. They, that's where those boys ended up. And they were kind of the big brothers of the three that came through and did really well at Wimbledon. And that competitive culture, it's ingrained in the program from the fact that they'll do two days, let's say two days of three hours um, training, two hours on court, one hour physical, and then two days of 90 minutes competing and 90 minutes physical. So we, we're able to do that because we have the resources. I keep going back to quality of facility, the number of courts, blah, 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 blah. It allows us to be able to do that. So... That competitiveness, it's ingrained through the week. They get to the weekend. These guys are hungry to, to play. I've got to say one thing that, you know, may be controversial. I was recently in Australia. Um, I was just appalled by how scared a lot of the girls were. I'm saying girls because I watch more girls tennis than boys. They were petrified to compete. You, look, i got to tell a story. My daughter is very young and she's a decent player. I mean, she's... Nine, nine and a half. She's a 4.2 UTR. Um, she's the best tenant under player up here in the Northeast. She goes to Australia. No one knows her. She plays a girl who's a 5.8 or something. This girl realizes she's in trouble and pulls out of the match after four games. I'm looking at the mum. What are you doing? Oh, no, she's injured. Really? Okay. Next round comes along. Another girl who's a 5.6 or 7. Same thing happens after four games. And I realized talking to a parent that... I don't know who's educated these parents on the UTR, but someone's told them that if you don't play a fifth game, it's it doesn't go into your UTR and it means it's not competitive. Absolutely. And and I should point out, Senate Court, we are the largest UTR organization on the planet. Last year, we won it again, largest club in the world. We know UTR inside out. We were the first club on the planet six years ago to bring it into the programs, running all our tournaments. UTR is great, but if that's all kids are thinking about, it is absolutely the worst thing that can happen. UTR is effectively social media, LinkedIn, and performance. So you've got these three components. 
Kids are tracking each other. Kids are bullying each other. Kids are, oh, you lost to Johnny on the weekend. So kids are just petrified to play. We don't have that here. I mean, there are obviously some kids who feel that pressure, but we try to beat it out of them in that just go and play more sets. doesn't matter who you play. And it just felt to me when I was in Australia, and I hadn't been home for seven years, so it was, it was so obvious to me this change that everyone was so hyper aware of everyone else and, and the kids were freezing. It was. I was shocked. I was shocked, guys. So passionate about this. I think I could talk about this for about three hours, to be honest. Um, you know, having coached a lot of females and it's like a pandemic over here of, of kids not wanting to play matches. And I'll tell you what else shocks me and I don't understand why this happens. You know, for, I had, a, had a, one of my kids that I'm, I'm coaching who's a, a 12 years old, played on the weekend. I said, you know, how'd you go? Let me know how had match end up? How'd you feel like you played? After several things, I got smashed. Okay. And I said to her, okay, well, talk me through it. She goes, he was a 16-year-old boy. She said, I just didn't stand a chance. And I said, well, how does that happen in weekend matches where a 12-year-old girl versus a 16-year-old boy whose UTR was maybe two levels above her, right? So you can say, yeah, it was a great experience. But the other problem we have is kids play boys of that age on the weekend and then don't really want to play again, right? Because no one enjoys playing someone that we know realistically doesn't probably stand a chance at that age from a strength perspective and probably even the, the level of UTR. And then to go out there and wonder, oh, I hope I don't play another boy again where I this happens, you know. Or it, or it just I just don't think it happens in a lot of other sports where you see girls competing against boys, you know, three or four ages above uh, where they're at. So I just found that a little bit in today's society where kids are a little bit more probably sensitive to those things. I think when we were playing, we would have played against anyone, including, you know, your best man's dog, whatever, next door, neighbour, whatever it was. But now I just think we're we're so thin on participation in general in our sport. Those sorts of uh, pathways for me I just shouldn't be happening because you don't see it. It's okay when you've got a 12-year-old girl versus a 12-year-old boy. There's not a lot of difference at that age, I would say. But as you start edging towards your teenage years and, and so forth, I just don't think we should be seeing that. Uh, that often. I'm not sure what you guys think, but I'm a little bit kind of against that. If they had a similar kind of level, you can sort of say yes, but if you're a couple of notches above, plus you're nearly six foot tall serving out of a mountain, I don't know if that's exactly conducive to development and keeping the players in the sport at that age. You know, I think, Betty, UTR is, is great for business people. You know, I'm a businessman. I love UTR. All our, We don't have dead court time because we're able to put on matches. But I think once you get beyond a three or a four, you got to start taking in all of those other factors that you're talking about. And there is a massive fork in the road, right? So for me, the fork in the road is at about a six. You know, a six and a half female and a six and a half male are two completely different animals. And if you're looking at, a, let's say, an eight, now there's a huge difference. And so you only have to look at, you know, to, to play – in a D1 school, if you're not a 12 UTR, you're not going to get a look. But for the girls, if you're a nine, you know, you're going to get a look. So the difference between a nine and a 12 is is night and day, right? So, yeah, I, I just think there's too many holes. And I'm, I'm mortified that Australia has taken UTR on as the national ranking. I just can't get my head around it. As someone who, who really has, you know, worked with UTR in our program, it's ingrained in our program. Um, for six years, seven years. I, I just cannot understand how they would take that on as a national ranking. 
really bad for tennis. Really bad for tennis. Yeah, my my fear with it is probably misunderstood a lot, but it's had an adverse effect in that, like you mentioned, we're probably creating worse competitors than better competitors. So whilst in theory there's a lot of stuff that you think would have it, it would have its advantages. It it may have an adverse effect in terms of the competitiveness. And this is what I was talking about a little earlier about seeing who's playing what tournament, players pulling out of tournaments. I mean, at the end of the day, tennis is about competing. If you want to get to a high level and you're going through this junior pathway and you and you want to get to the high level, if you don't want to compete, then it ain't going to happen anyway. So unless you're out there competing, putting yourself on the line, learning, moving on, um, it, it, it won't happen. So, you know, that that's probably an area I think a lot of us over here and, and us as coaches as well is – putting more of that competitive element into our training environments and our and our coaching environments. Now, for you, Conrad, who's coached uh, in the US, Asia, and Australia, what are the, the main differences you've observed from probably more of a coaching aspect? I mean, we've touched on the competitive side, but more from a, a coaching and, and training aspect in terms of volume, the holistic development, the mentality and and what you think the advantages and disadvantages of the of the different different co- places you've coached. So look, Asia. I'll talk about Asia. I'm I'm very passionate about Asia. I had two years in Japan and, and 15 years uh, in China. Um, when I started in China, Lena was probably four five hundred in the world, and tennis really was not on the map yet. And when I was there, the Chinese won the doubles at the uh, Athens Olympics and. And that with Sun Tiantian and Li Ting, and that really kind of boost started to boost tennis. But you know, in in China, they've still got the provincial system, which I'm a massive fan of. Like a lot of people are not, but I I really am because um, these provinces, are, when they compete against each other, it's almost like international games. You know, I was, I was fortunate to coach at two different China games as as a head coach of different provincial teams. You're talking like 12,000 to 14,000 athletes. So that was great. And that was what everybody wants to play in. So in China, predominantly a lot of Asia, overtraining is a real factor. There's not enough competition. There's not enough tournaments. It's changing a little bit now, obviously, with the, the ITF. You know, there's a lot more going on in China. But you get a lot of players that are, that are literally thumping balls five hours a day, not much tactical coaching behind it. Um, it's all ping pong on a big court, basically. Um, lots of foreigner court stuff. So you get a lot of straight hitting going on. Um, not much all court development, uh, cause everything's on hard court. So, you know, China has slowly gotten better. Now you go around and you see a lot of different provinces with great facilities. Um, but I really feel like a lot of the best Chinese players are now training outside of China. And a lot of them are actually in, in the U S because of the competition factor. So China, yeah, really, really strong athletes, you know, big, strong legs, um, a lot of heavy lifting in, the, in their training, especially with the lower body, which was very interesting to me. Very little understanding of serve, you know, and I can think of one of the girls who was one of the big hopes. Um, she hadn't served. She hadn't been taught to serve till she was probably 11 years old. Um, and that, I think that's just too late. So the serve's never really a major part of how they play the game. And we all know how important that is. The US, we've talked a lot about it, but you know, it's really the number of tournaments kids can play here. So every the tournaments here are run on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There's always, you know, finals on Sunday and consolation on Sunday. So if you go out in the first round or the second round, you're automatically fed into the console. 
and you're going to play on Sunday, which is great because kids can play four times a week. Now, in all the holidays, like right now, we have holidays. There are they run tournaments on um, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and on Thursdays and Fridays as well. So you can play two tournaments in a week. You might play, you know, the the early week tournament and then the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you do that over, let's say, eight weeks, that's sixteen mm-hmm. tournaments. And then let's say you play two a month for the rest of the year. Kids here in America can easily play 25 tournaments a year. And that that in itself, as you guys well know, is a humongous developmental factor. The number of you know events they're playing and the, all of the whole routine they're going through, that doesn't exist in Asia and it certainly doesn't exist in Australia. That is something I think that's really helping. But you mentioned a moment ago, Michael, the... Everybody in America wants to go to college. Everybody. No one's going to say to you, very few people are going to say to you, I'm, I'm just going to turn pro. You know, I've, I've got a couple of girls. One of the girls I coach is probably number two or three in the country right now, 14 and under. Totally focused on going to college. All of those three Wimbledon finalists went to college. If you look at the French Open, I think there was 28 players in the draws from college. College is a legitimate pathway. You, you, I think if you're a tennis player and you are not planning to go to college, you're really crazy because the whole length of careers are now much longer. And if you choose the right college, I mean, it can be the perfect stepping stone into a career. So that's the biggest thing here in the US. In China, for example, a lot of the players that were really good, they were in a college in China. I don't really know how because they didn't go to school, but they were in a college in China and they come out with a degree. But once that's happened, they're done. That's it. There's no more opportunities. Whereas here, the kids going to college, they're competing on the ITF Pro Tour at least eight weeks, some of them 10 weeks. Um, You get the right coach that's supportive of that goal. Some of them can even go for more weeks. So they're the biggest differences. I mean, you guys are in Australia. You know a little bit more about what's happening there. Um, I mentioned when I was there, what I'd seen. Japan was also really interesting, Michael. I was in Japan for a couple of years. And I personally believe that the Japanese juniors are the best in the world until 14 or 15. And what happens at 14 or 15 in Japan is there's a rule that they can't miss more than, I think it's eight days a year, it might be six days a year of school, which means all those highly competitive kids, they can't travel or compete anymore. And Japan have that same problem of lack of tournaments and they have the problem of surfaces. They play a lot on Omnicord or synthetic grass, which, which doesn't really help too much. Sort of before we wrap wrap this up, Conrad, you mentioned something with these the, the amount of tournaments. And one thing that um, I've been doing a little bit of research on our tournament schedule a little bit, and I looked at the month of August, for example, in Melbourne, and there are no open events to be played here in August. So you've got to go to Queensland or Sydney to go and play. Actually, there might be a couple, two potentially. But for, for a city of Melbourne that uh, hosts the Australian Open and hosts many events, I found that quite shocking that we didn't have events on, you know, nearly every week for players that are here because, yes, we have got pro, a couple of pro circuits on at the moment in, in Queensland. But what happens to the majority of players that actually need to work on competing work on, you know, maybe developing their UTR, for example, or have, and may have other goals. There's just not much on. And I'm not sure what you think, Michael. I mean, you're, you're coaching a lot of these kids also that are here. To go and spend, you know, it, it costs a fortune to fly to Queensland. It, actually, it's cheaper to fly to Singapore than go to Queensland some of, you know, different parts of the year. I just find that, I, I just find that shocking, honestly, that we as a as a country that's one of the biggest cities, <laughs> you know, biggest city one of, next to Sydney in the country doesn't host many more events throughout this period seeing we have that many clay courts as well that i think that during a cold winter month you could be playing on 
I think from a junior perspective, it's okay. But I also think about that mid range of kids that maybe want to go to college, want to you need to play, need to play tournaments, need to play matches. There's just not much on for those players at this stage, and I'm not sure whether they're looking at changing that in the future. But I just think there should be a lot more events for those that mid range of of athlete looking to compete. Yeah, if I can say one thing, Mike, before you jump in there. So Betty, what we've got here, like we've got obviously UTR events, USTA events. But then you have ITA events, which most people don't know about, right? So this is the Intercollegiate Tennis Association where they have a summer circuit, but there's probably 12 to 20 of those a year split out at different times. And that caters exactly for these players that are transitional players. Um, And then the UTR Pro events are absolutely everywhere. So again, it comes back to, I think here, these players, I've got so many players just today at our camp. We had three alumni that from the full-time academy that we're training who are playing at Ivy League schools, out training with kids who are 15 and 16, like Michael was saying, giving back a little bit too, but competing the whole time. Tomorrow afternoon, they fly off to an ITA, right? And then they come back and three weeks from now, there's three men's pro tournaments two hours up the road at Ithaca at Cornell. So the, the number of opportunities are there. I don't understand why Australia couldn't do that. I mean, I really think it's not hard to do to create an ITA type circuit in Australia where there's a little bit of money involved. You know, college players now are allowed to pick up up to 10000 a year, which has to be for expenses. But, you know, we could easily do that in Australia. I was back just recently. One of the girls training, I won't mention her name, but she's a really good player playing college tennis over here. She was back training in Melbourne. It was pouring rain. This girl's like an 11 UTR serving in the pouring rain. I'm like, well, what are you doing here? She'll be back. She goes, yeah, I'm straight back to America. I've got to go and compete. So that's really sad to see. I agree with you. There's so many opportunities. Just on that, Conrad, is that I literally recently in the States where the kids played ITA events every single week. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to them because they went from not competing at all for months in Australia to, well, at least a month, to all of a sudden playing four matches a day. You know, they're all of a sudden, they've wrapped up the amount of matches they played across three weeks. They would not accumulate in probably two months. That's so sad, Betty. I mean, you go out to Melbourne Park during the week in the holidays. It's a ghost town. Like, why aren't we running our own form of ITA-style events in Australia. I mean, if I, I think if I was to move back to Australia, that's that's exactly the sweet spot. I'd be looking to try to, you know, bring something like that in. I would hope Australian development, you know, systems and leaders are thinking more about that because the kids have to compete. I was talking to our Princeton head coach, Billy Pate, the other day, uh, his good mate as well, and Billy was saying the number that we're looking at for kids is if they haven't played a 1,000 matches, then, you know, we're, we're not sure they'll be ready for college tennis. What chance has a kid in Australia got of having a thousand matches? Well, the simple answer to that is no. There's no chance. Going back to that, and and you can answer this in a question in a second, is how many matches would the kids over there be playing? Because it'd be interesting for people to know the number of matches that kids in the US are playing compared to the kids here. And that's only tournament matches alone. I think a, a big issue, because we are so far away here, is the quality of competition too and how often we get our best players playing against each other. A concern of mine is probably a nationals where the best kids aren't all playing against each other. So we don't get these kids 
together enough. I think that's a big issue is getting them in that environment where the best are playing the best more often. I don't know how we do it. That's a, it could be a logistical thing. It could be, there's a lot of tournaments, a lot of players that they're sending overseas. So there's issues with dates and all that kind of stuff. I, I understand that, but I think that's a massive issue unless the kids are competing against the best and whether they're getting the quality of competition over an extended period of time. I don't think we are enough here in the US. I'd be interested to know also your better kids who are at that national level, how important nationals is for them. Is their training block worked around these events or are they pretty much not playing these national tournaments and then just going to play ITFs and whatnot? And also how many matches would they be playing a year? So I'd answer that with, Part of the downside here in the U.S., in my opinion, is that many of the parents are blinded by the USTA. Because the USTA is so huge um, and there's so many events, the USTA pumps the USTA events, obviously, and uh, so much so that when we're looking at, um, when I'm part of the High Commission, High Performance Commission here in America, when we're looking at what's called the NSLs, the National Standing Lists, um, there are various columns of what we're looking at. And obviously... National ranking is is the number one criteria, but it used to be UTR that was also the second criteria. That's dropped off completely. Now it's all WTN based and ITF was never part of that. And so I was the one that was really pushing for them to add ITF ranking into that column because there are a lot of kids who fall away from the national system and just follow ITF. So their national rankings are really low, as you, as you know, but their ITF rankings are really high. And so... They've included that now, which I think is a big thing. As an academy, we have really stressed ITF travel because we have access to the Caribbean. We have access to, you know, the South American uh, tours, uh, Central America, and even North America and Canada. So, um, you know, a lot of kids do want to play the national tournaments here, and there's one next week. Uh, it's the National Hardcore Tournament on. So if kids who got in definitely want to play – and Sometimes they, you know, 256 player draws. Clay court draw was 256. That's a lot of matches to make it through the final. So look, definitely it's a pride thing. And, and also the the hard court nationals um winner of the 18s gets a wild card to obviously the US Open. Uh, and the winner of the 16s gets into the qualies. So yes, people definitely want to play the hard courts um for that. We have also winter nationals, which are a lot less played, but um, they are definitely important because you win those. The players here are also rated on a, a star rating system. Uh, we can be a blue chip player or a five-star rated player, and that means you're going to, you know, the top college coaches are already looking at you. And so it's important for your college star rating that you are playing in USDA events. So, yeah, people kind of balance up both, uh, Michael, but I feel like ITF is definitely – in the last five or six years, a lot more American kids are starting to play those over the USDAs. Conrad, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on to discuss everything, all the heart of uh, Centre Court Tennis Academy. It's uh, it's really opened up our eyes to competition and you know and what's happening over there versus you know how we could implement maybe some ideas that that are happening in the US. We uh, appreciate everything you've spoken to us about today. Always fun to catch up with old friends, guys. I think it's probably got a hundred years of friendship amongst us. So great to see you both. I hope you're doing well and, and keep kicking goals. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show.
other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.